and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Thank you so much for your patience as I took a week off, everyone. I got really, really sick, and I absolutely needed some downtime. Anyway, I have an eclectic bunch of stories for you this week, so let's jump in, shall we? First up this week is The House by Alicia Hollingsworth. The house, hiding, camouflaged by the cascading landscape of forest, alone, 30 minutes from the nearest intersection of affability. The inhabitants are now living day to day in the shadow of death. The father, falling ill and needing constant care at the nearby hospital, rarely using the new property for more than a stopover, save for their young daughter, left to tend to herself at the tender age of 14. Each day she is awoken by the soft tapping of water hitting the shower floor where her exhausted mother tends to the tediousness of dressing and looking the part. Then her mother proceeds to softly open her daughter's door, rousing her into the twilight to get ready for school. She departed before she can say goodbye. Her mother leaves lunch money and a note promising to bring back groceries after her daily processional towards the hospital. Her name is Jillian, and she is forced to embrace this newfound freedom by following her given routine. She goes to school. She does her work. She returns home and rummages the cabinets for dinner. The house is secluded in a newly developed acreage of the Appalachian forest. It is one sprawling level with top-to-bottom windows on the backside, which slide and invite its guests into a wraparound deck. The first level is 3,000 square feet and bears a burden on her mother. The downstairs was frantically dug out first when building the house, leaving scars in the earth beside the retaining wall and scores of dirt and solid bits of creamy debris left for dead underneath the expansive deck. Her parents had this space made into two parts, a guest suite with full working kitchen, bathroom, dining room, living room, and office, and the massive expanse that was to be nicknamed the playroom off the bottom of the stairs to the right. The full finishing of the basement was completed late that summer and featured yet another layer of top-to-bottom windows along the backside of the property. From both levels, the view was nothing but a myriad of trees which blended together with the previous year's leaf litter. During the summer months, it was a sea of green, but during the colder months, it exposed a brown that consumed you, that matched the macabre of both nature and life. The walk home from the bus stop was a short 20 minutes from the base of the mountain. The roads were developed, but not suited for first-time bus drivers who could barely force the 1980s ride up, let alone along the curvature of the road. She unlocked the front door, the light filling the space, but at the same time leaving her feeling more alone every time she allowed it to touch her skin. She opened the sliding window to allow the chill of a fall breeze into her lungs. The house was quiet empty and abrasive. 
She laid down her bag and followed the breeze out onto the deck. She embodied this place, so brown and falling, and she let her gaze follow the breeze to her left. A deer, a buck, with two diverging antlers, towering above his delicate head. She eased closer to it on the deck, making sure to lay her steps lightly until it cautiously looked up from grazing and bolted into the forest on the south side of the house. She followed. Much like the deer, she ran into the evening, not sure of where or why she was going. She ran until the breath left her lungs and put her hands on her knees, looking onto the ground she trusted. Twenty yards away, she saw the curvature of a stone that looked out of place, and she crept light-footed toward the anomaly in the forest. It jutted up amongst the flat ground like a ruin. Stepping around the rock, she could barely make out what looked like a name and a date, withered in time. Suddenly, she realized what she had found. A grave. With a quick breath in, she surveyed her surroundings. There were more, ten if not fifteen more, on this plot of broken land, spread a mere twenty to a hundred yards from the newly built house. This silent shroud left undiscovered by developers and owners alike. Until now. A harsh crack sent her head to the sound, and she saw the buck fall to the ground. She called out to let the hunter know that she was there, only to be returned in silence. She took one last look at both the buck and the graves, and noisily walked back to the house whilst singing her favorite church hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Inside, she gathered her belongings and went down into the guest suite. The sun was touching the top of the mountain, and she settled into a spot to read, letting the light guide her eye. As the light fell from the room, she made her way to the downstairs kitchen to make herself a pot of canned soup that was stashed in the pantry. As she saw it, the upstairs was for her parents, and this space was hers and sacred, a place of safety without the regard of illness or absence or sadness. The darkness had blanketed the house as she poured the soup from the pan and into a bowl as the stark sound of the phone ringing edged her out of herself. Walking to the landline, she picked up the receiver, giving the former salutation of, Hello? There was a pause, a silence that egged out of her throat another concerned, Hello? The silence deepened and deepened into a dial tone. She placed the phone back on the wall with hesitance and took a few steps back to her dinner when it rang again. Hello? The silence grabbed her attention and kept her there as it slowly turned into a static and once again a dial tone. She flung the phone back angrily and waited there stoically, waiting to give this rude person a piece of her mind. The phone fell silent. She reached to pick it up only to hear silence. No dial tone at all. She placed it back and repeated the actions. 
picking the phone back up, hearing nothing but silence. A deafening silence. No tone to call out, and no way to call in. She left her dinner and the kitchen, but checking the time before leaving, 7.05 p.m. Her mother should be home soon. Visiting hours lasted till 8. She would inform her mother of the phone, and someone would be out to fix this issue, most likely brought on by the steady breeze that surrounded the mountain. A wind must have knocked out the phones. She moved to the guest suite living room and turned on all the lights, turned on the TV. The darkness outside creeping in so casually from the oversized shadows. She waited, watching the last of a pleasant show on food TV. The phone again, ringing. Once, twice, silence. She gathered herself and walked toward the basement stairs as the TV went to full-volume static, and a breeze hit the back of her neck. Had she left a downstairs window unlocked? Could someone have broken in? Running up the staircase, she slammed the door shut just in time to see all of the light leave the basement. She locked the basement door that spat her into the living room of the upstairs. The fragile light from the upstairs kitchen was still illuminating, and she locked all of the windows that surrounded her and pulled down the shades that left her exposed to the darkness, but ever glowing from outside in. She ran into the protection of the kitchen and slid down the wall facing the windows, holding her knees, breathing rhythmically to calm her nerves. Lying her head back, she heard a soft tapping on the windows directly out of her sight. She breathed, the tapping again, silence, again, silence. With one final breath, she grabbed a knife from the countertop butcher block and crawled on all fours towards the hallway that led to her bedroom. As she reached her bedroom door, the light from the kitchen became dimmer and flickered then dimmer, then out. She flung herself into her bedroom, taking care to lock the door behind her. With her back to the door, holding the knife shakily in both clasped hands, she waited. Silence. Then, the tap. From down the hall, it crept, like a soft step of malevolence the space in front of her door. Silence. As the door she most certainly locked pushed against her back. Creeping to under her bed, knife held dear, she waited as the door loomed open with no feet in its midst. The tapping moved along her wall and then toward her closet. She heard the tapping inside of the closet. The closet door, blankly, standing still, as impossible as it was. The tapping then turned to scratching. The horrid noise, like fingernails cutting through the plaster. She crawled out from beneath the bed and lurched toward the open door, which allowed almost all of her to pass through. Her feet, so delicate, 
caught at the last minute by the brute force of a slamming door, sending the knife she held so dear into her throat. She lay there in shock, suffocating in the cool fall breeze from the night air that drifted from the kitchen, from the living room, from the basement, through the closed windows, directly to her failing throat. Reaching to retrieve the knife from her bleeding wound, she found a pool of blood that was thickening second by second. As death came, hiding, camouflaged by darkness, cascading through the wood floor alone, the last thing she heard was the ringing in her ears. The answering machine picked up. You've reached Janice, Joe, and Jillian. Please leave us a message after the beep. A hushed, static-filled, almost inaudible voice. This next story comes to us from Keeley Moyer, and it's called Cherry Brownies. Kate sat on the bar stool, watching as her grandmother mixed a thick, bright red liquid into the brownie batter. Grandma, what's that stuff? Kate asked her. Her grandmother looked up at her and smiled. Some of her gray hair had fallen out of her bun and was now hanging in her face. Oh, it's just some cherry sauce, sweetheart. I'm making cherry brownies, Grandmother explained, whisking away as she spoke. Kate looked back down at the bowl, the red mixed with the dark brown, making a soft pinkish color. What's cherry brownies? The seven-year-old asked. Well, they're just like regular brownies, but they just have some cherries added to them. Grandmother hummed. Grandmother turned away from the young girl and opened up a cupboard that was full of baking sheets and baking pans. The old lady started to rummage through the cupboard, looking for an 8-inch by 8-inch glass pan. Can I have some after they're done baking? Kate asked, tipping her head to the side. No, sweetheart. I'm baking them for someone else. Grandmother laughed, not turning around. Kate pouted. She didn't understand why she couldn't at least try the cherry brownies. They sounded really good. Anything Grandmother baked was so good. Kate's eyes found themselves staring into the bowl, at the pale pink batter. Surely, Grandmother wouldn't mind if she tasted a little bit of the batter... It smelled good, and plus, pink was Kate's favorite color. Kate leaned forward over the counter and reached for the bowl. Her little fingers had only brushed the brim of the mixing bowl when her grandmother had found her glass pan and turned around just in time. Kate! No, don't do that! Grandmother scolded, moving the mixing bowl out of the young girl's reach. Kate sat back crossed her arms and stuck out her bottom lip. For a minute or two, the pair didn't speak, 
Grandmother was busy pouring in the pink batter in the glass pan, and Kate was too busy pouting. Grandmother looked back up at Kate and gave her a little smile. Sweetheart, I know you want to try this, but this is for someone else. But I do have some peanut butter and chocolate cookies in the oven, Grandmother said in a sing-song voice. The bottom lip was gone, but Kate still had her arms crossed. While we wait, I can tell you a story, Grandmother pointed out. Kate's arms uncrossed, and her dark eyes lit up. Tell me your life story, Kate demanded. Grandmother laughed again. (laughs) Haven't I told you that five times this week? Kate also laughed. (laughs) It's my favorite story. (sighs) All right, then. Well, you already know, of course, that my mother was a chef and my father was a butcher. They were good people and they always said to me, We will raise you right and we expect you to raise your children right. It's always the parents' fault if their child doesn't turn out right. I promised them I would raise my children right. I had your mother when I was 30. She was... My everything. After her father died, she became very important to me. We got along well almost all the time. Grandmother's voice tailed off and her old blue eyes filled with tears. It had been eight months since Kate's mother Charlie had taken her own life. Kate's father had been abusing both Kate and her mother. He had always told Charlie it was her fault because she wasn't pretty enough or skinny enough or because she gave him another useless girl instead of a son. He beat this into her mother's head so often that she started to believe him. Kate's mother had been found in the bathroom by grandmother. Her wrists slit. Her father was nowhere to be found and Kate's other grandparents wanted nothing to do with her so she lived with grandmother. Kate was happy here, and she loved her grandmother. Grandmother? Kate piped up. Grandmother snapped out of her dreamlike state. Oh, sorry, sweetheart. I zoned out for a second, grandmother muttered. The oven timer dinged. They're done, grandmother chirped, putting on her oven mitt and opening the oven door. The yellow and brown cookies gave off an aroma of peanut butter and hot chocolate. Cookies! Kate squealed, bouncing up and down in her seat. Later, Kate had passed out on the couch after stuffing herself full of cookies. Grandmother had finished baking the cherry brownies and put them in a neat little white box that had a red ribbon and tag that said, From Thomas, on it. Grandmother looked at Kate's small, sleeping form on the couch, and had felt her heart swell. After she had found her darling little girl dead in the bathroom, she felt like she had lost her meaning to life. Charlie had been her everything, the reason she still had the will to live. But now, Kate had taken that role, and this time, she would make sure that she died before Kate did. Grandmother walked over to Kate 
and kissed her on the forehead. Kate rolled over but remained fast asleep. Grandmother walked over to the sliding glass door and opened it. The warm sunlight covered the old lady like a blanket as she made her way out to the shed in the backyard. Grandmother took the old rusted golden key out of her pocket and unlocked the shed door. The shed had nothing in it but a large freezer. Grandmother opened the freezer and smiled at what she saw. Her son-in-law. Thomas's body hung by a hook. His ribcage was exposed. Most of the meat from his legs were gone and all of his blood drained. Grandmother had been really surprised by how a little cherries and sugar covered up the taste of blood. Only two cups and a teaspoon. She could still remember when Thomas showed up the night before Kate came to live with her, demanding that she give him his daughter. So, she invited him inside, had him sit down on the couch, poured him some beer that had some window cleaner in it, and gave it to him. The hardest part had been dragging his body out to the freezer, but it had been worth it. She didn't blame Thomas, no. She blamed his parents. It's always the parents' fault how the child turns out, her loving parents told her. They made sure they punched, slapped, and kicked that into her head. Grandmother couldn't imagine the guilt and pain a parent would feel if they found out that they were eating their own child and didn't even know it. Our last story of the evening comes to us from Ken Kreckler. He's back with another Twilight Zone-esque story that will be perfect for those of you who actually use this show to fall asleep. You'll see. This one is called Lucid. Estelle coughs, (coughs) then smooths the wrinkles of her dress and slow, careful motions. She removes a tissue from her purse, digging through makeup and coupons and packs of gum, and blows her nose with an audible honk that shakes the room. But still, the doctor doesn't look up from the file he's flipping through. Outside in the hall, she can hear the receptionist taking calls in that pleasant, guarded voice that all good receptionists have. How did you hear about us? Says the doctor, still reading, clicking his pen. I saw you on the news. The doctor nods. How old are you? Uh, 59. Shuffle of papers. (coughs) A sneeze. Says here you suffer from arthritis and asthma. Is that correct? Hesitance. Then, yes, only mildly. He glances at her quickly, then closes the file, tossing it aside. Well, we processed your application. Psych report came back clean. Blood works clean. We can get started right away if you like. Estelle blinks, kneading the tissue in her hands. You you mean... Right now? 
The doctor gestures towards a door behind him. The door is sealed with a numerical keypad next to it. Just through there, if you're ready. Uh, I have to check with my insurance company first. I don't know if they cover these kinds of... The first treatment is free, says the doctor. We find it takes about an hour for a first-time patient to get acclimated. After that, the experience will speak for itself, and you can make an educated decision. She sighs deeply, looking out the window, watching the cars roar across the freeway. A clock is ticking somewhere in the room. Estelle is tearing at the tissue now, peeling it into little pieces that drift carelessly onto the floor. The doctor seems to notice something, leans forward. He takes off his glasses and sets them carefully aside. Mrs. Hamilton? Her eyes snap back to him. Yes, doctor, I'm sorry. I was just thinking... Mrs. Hamilton, says the doctor gently. May I ask you something personal? Of course. Why are you here? She sits back, unaccustomed to directness. (laughs) I'm sorry? Why are you here today? What are you hoping to accomplish? Estelle frowns, looks back out the window. The cars, the sky. I have bad dreams, she says, still looking. What we offer here is strictly for recreational purposes, Mrs. Hamilton. Any any therapeutic value you might derive is purely coincidental. We can't make any guarantees about that. I know, says Estelle, nodding, her mind far away. But that's all right. That's... That's all right. The doctor watches her a moment more, then stands. He picks up a phone, stabs at a button, and waits winking at Estelle to kill time. His face brightens. Tracy, can you prep number seven for me? Thank you. They walk now through a hallway filled with dim blue light. The soothing sound of new age music playing softly from a hidden sound system. Glass doors line both walls and through each door is a cozy, cube-like room containing a single, empty bed. Next to each bed is a nightstand with a phone. Eventually, the doctor is saying, you'll be able to administer the procedure yourself in the comfort of your own home, but we prefer beginners to complete an on-site session with us first. Estelle's footsteps are steady, and slow. She looks through each door, seeing the beds inside with fine, pressed linens 
folded neatly over each edge. This way, says the doctor, staring straight ahead. We can take a few readings and find out which prescription will suit you best. He suddenly turns to her. Would you like a sedative? What? A sedative. A mild sedative. Some people find they have trouble sleeping in a strange bed. Oh, says Estelle distantly, her eyes moving over the walls. No, I I don't think so. It's critical that you actually fall asleep, says the doctor, peering over his glasses at her. If your brain doesn't shut down all the way, the headset won't activate. Unless you're certain you can fall asleep, I really recommend... I'd like to try without the sedative, for now, says Estelle firmly. I take enough pills. The doctor shrugs. Two other people around the corner now, walking toward them. One of them appears to be another doctor, a short, round woman carrying a clipboard. She keeps a gentle hand on the arm of a patient as she escorts him back to the office. The patient is a young man in his twenties. He carries a small duffel bag and wears pajamas with green slippers. He is smiling. As the two pairs pass, Estelle catches the patient's eyes and realizes that the other man is humming softly to himself. The patient sees her and nods knowingly, as if they share a secret. The woman doctor is asking, How do you feel? The patient turns to her. Thank you, he replies, his voice soft and tame. Thank you. Estelle lies flat on her back in the clean, sterile bed as the nurse plants two sticky rubber nodes at the base of each temple, another one over her heart. The doctor is still here somewhere in the room, but she can't see him because of the goggles. The doctor is saying, Try to relax. She can feel the sheets being tucked in around her. She can hear the music drifting over. Every muscle in her body is tense. The nurse and I are going to leave the room now, says the doctor. The door will be locked, but it still opens from the inside. You are free to leave whenever you wish. Estelle listens as the voices and footsteps move toward the foot of the bed. She tries to turn her head but can't because of the goggles. If you would like to stop the process at any time, Use the phone. Someone will attend you immediately. A mild hiss as the door opens. They step outside. Build carefully, the doctor says. Then, the door snaps shut, and Estelle is alone with her thoughts and the feel of a foreign room. It's very peaceful here, she thinks, and closes her eyes beneath the headset, waiting. Estelle comes home to the sound of the television blaring loud, with the droning voices of sitcom characters arguing. Her husband, Frank, sits on the couch, the discarded remnants of a TV dinner gathering flies on a nearby tray. 
And he doesn't look up as she enters. Doesn't notice. She's upset. Closing the door behind her, she stops, pausing briefly, her eyes far away. Then she loosens her jacket and drops it carelessly onto the closest chair, followed by her purse, followed by her. From the other room, Frank says, There's tea! On the stove behind her is a steaming kettle filled with two tea bags, just how she likes it, just how she taught him to like it. She stands and shambles absently across the kitchen, performing a memorized routine. And when it's over, she's back at the table, staring at a mug of tea she doesn't want. Wish I'd known you'd be home so late, says Frank, annoyed. Estelle can see her face in the tea, reflected. Frank coughs, clearing his throat, hawking phlegm into a nearby garbage bag reserved expressly for that very purpose. He wriggles out of his seat, lifting a plethora of empty dishes and cups and silverware. He walks to the kitchen and, with a loud clatter of glass and metal, dumps them into the basin, shifts them around. All of this while she sits there, staring. Then Frank turns and sees her, and he says, What's the problem now? She answers, too weak to resist him, to resist anything anymore. I had my appointment today. Yeah? How'd that go? She pauses for only a second, then says, It didn't work. (laughs) Of course not, says Frank, satisfied. He chuckles softly, turns to wash his hands. What happened? There was a doctor. Estelle, it's not possible. What they claim to do? That's not real. The brain is a complicated thing. You need proper psychiatric care. It isn't magic, Frank. It's science, and I've already tried. How much did this place charge you? Nothing. Estelle. I couldn't fall asleep. Frank pauses. What? They brought me in, says Estelle. Her voice soft and far away. And they did me up in a nice, clean bed, and I didn't think I'd have a problem, but... But no. It was too strange. The smells were strange, so I stopped it. Frank had been listening to this, quietly, thoughtfully. Then he grabs a dish towel and walks out of the room. I don't want you going back there, he calls. Estelle is looking at the tea again. And when it stops steaming, she picks it up and pours it out. It's hard for Estelle to talk about her first husband, Martin. She has tried for so long to erase him from her memory that it has become almost impossible for her to recollect anything 
beyond general events. But she remembers the events. And she remembers the pain. They'd had a writing class together, years ago, in school. A course in creative writing, where a room of teens and twenty-somethings sat in desks arranged in a circle and discussed at great length what was wrong with everyone else's work but theirs. Where heated debates over controversial issues would spark disagreements on grammar. And Estelle was there. And Martin was there. And that was how they'd met. It was an outdoor wedding on a beautiful day, where people laughed and drank wine and danced until the evening came. And Martin would smile at Estelle from across the room as he shook the hands of colleagues and friends, and she would nod and smile back. For three years, they lived in a quiet town just outside of Boston. They had good jobs, and every year they'd take a trip, holding hands as they walked along sandy beaches or dusty deserts or big cities with bright lights. He took up painting pictures, horses mainly, and from time to time, she would write a story or a poem, and they would lay in bed as Martin read them, touching her thigh, whispering words. There were picnics. More than anything, they loved picnics, with green grass and checkered cloth. They'd eat and still be talking hours later, trees swaying patiently around them. They never had children together. There wasn't time. They were having too much fun. Three years of fun. Until the cancer came. After the funeral, the world looked gray, and the air was hard to breathe. Going outside became a struggle. There was nothing for her there. Her friends, her brothers and sisters, concerned neighbors, they'd all drop by to offer help. They'd try to say something positive. Maybe they'd cry a little. Then they'd go away. There were no more picnics anymore. And she began to have bad dreams. Estelle stopped going to work. She didn't quit, she just stopped going. Eventually, she had to sell the house and auction off her assets. All of Martin's paintings, gone. Their history together, gone. Her hair turned silver. The skin around her eyes began to sag. She didn't notice. One day, she met a man named Frank at the supermarket. Fifty-two and balding, he owned his own business. He had three cars and a house on the lake. Estelle was never sure why Frank took to her so quickly, but he did, and he seemed nice enough to make the bad dreams go away. So, two months later, they got married. But the dreams kept coming. A week before she pours out the tea, Estelle is watching a story on the local news about a new kind of clinic offering a unique service package. The report says something about a sleep study, about light patterns being used to trigger certain areas of the brain, 
inducing some sort of rare and special state. On the screen, there is a man in a white doctor's jacket. He's holding up what looks like an elaborate set of complicated goggles. He's pointing at the lenses. He's explaining things. A line of text overlays on top of him. Experimental procedure may prove cure-all for sleep disorders. The camera cuts to a 15-second advertisement. Images of clouds and oceans. In voiceover, a woman's voice is asking... What if you could build the world around you in an instant? The voice is asking. What if your dreams were up to you? Estelle glances at Frank on the sofa, clipping his toenails, uninterested. Then she looks back at the television. This clinic, it's only 20 minutes away. Good to see you again, Mrs. Hamilton, the doctor says. She feels calm, despite the nurse adjusting straps and knobs near the back of her head. Estelle is wearing the goggles again, a newer model this time. The sheets of the bed smell pleasantly of disinfectant and fabric softener. Music playing overhead. The doctor is holding his clipboard, writing... Didn't expect to see you back so soon, to be honest. Your first experience with us proved to be more... uh, Vivid? More intense than usual. Most of our patients need some time to recover after something like that. Estelle can feel tears start to build behind the lenses. I couldn't wait, she says. I wasn't sure at first, but now... Her voice catches, and she swallows hard. It's wonderful what you people are doing. It's wonderful work. The doctor nods, not looking up. Well, that's what we like to hear. Would you like a sedative? Yes, please. She says, trying to stifle the anticipation, the excitement. I think I'll need one this time. Certainly, says the doctor. I see here you changed your emergency contact, a Linda Fletcher? Estelle pauses. My neighbor. She lives next door, always home. What about your husband? Her mouth tastes bitter and dry. Linda is better, she says. The doctor stops writing, looks up at her briefly. I see. One final strap pulls tight around her forehead. Someone hands her a small pill and a glass of water, but she can't see them because of the goggles. She swallows them anyway. She hears footsteps moving away from her. The hiss of the door. Build carefully, Mrs. Hamilton. And she closes her eyes. She pictures trees. Outside the observation room, 
The doctor has taken ten steps before he's realized that the nurse isn't following him. He turns to see her standing in the hall, her fists clenched, her eyes on the floor, tearing up. The doctor sighs and clicks his pen into his pocket. Something wrong? The nurse doesn't move. The doctor adjusts his glasses. Allison? I can't do this anymore, she says, trembling quietly. I quit. He shifts his weight to face her fully. Excuse me? That woman... The nurse is saying in wet, ragged words. She won't stop coming, will she? She swallows, looks up at the ceiling. They never stop coming. The doctor is watching her very carefully, his eyes cold and calculating. No, he says. No, they never stop coming. Can't you see? The nurse says, wiping tears away. Don't you see what a lie this all is? The doctor's eyes flicker only once with some unknown, unevaluated feeling that eludes his understanding. He puts his hands in his pockets. Looking down, he says... Yes. A long moment passes, and he says, But it doesn't bother me. Finally, she looks at him, her face and eyes working together in a piercing glare. So you're quitting, says the doctor, and folds his arms. The nurse's mouth tightens. I can't do this anymore, Brian. Her voice sounds pleading. And neither can you. And you know it. He stares at her for a long time. His face calm. Then he brings out his pen and turns, writing on his clipboard, walking away down the hall. Let Tracy know, he says, his voice echoing. She'll take care of the paperwork. The nurse remains motionless. The hall feels cold and dark. She wonders at what she's just done, waiting for some sense of affirmation. She's still waiting, even now. Estelle sits on grass, laughing as a cool breeze runs its fingers through her hair. The sun is high and bright, shining in some impossible way that makes it the most beautiful thing anyone could ever see. Scraps of bread and plastic are strewn around an open basket. Laughing hysterically, She rolls back against a checkered cloth. Some birds are soaring through a crystal sky, and as they spiral, gliding toward infinite paradise, 
Estelle's fingers tighten around the warmth of a hand, and the hand squeezes back, and the rainbows stretch for miles. For a moment, she thinks she feels something cold shift against her face. The moment after, the feeling disappears. She still has bad dreams from time to time. They never really went away. They likely never will. But there are picnics again. And the sky is blue. And the sun is bright. And the trees sway patiently around them. Thanks for listening, and thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And thank you to all my Patreon supporters for sponsoring every episode. A huge warm welcome, and thank you to our newest Patreon patrons, Lucas Dusenberry, Jennifer Moonchild, Tracy Marita Sprague, Emily May, Herd of Turtles, Tara Hardy, Tanisha Washington, Matthew Adonisio, <laughs> Cody Walker, Nat, Melissa Collinson, Toby Ola, Danielle Connolly, Emma Reaver, and Lily Greenslade Davy. Thank you so, so, so much. I am sending you each a big, warm hug. Remember, you can submit your stories to scarytosleep at gmail.com or you can use the contact form at scarytosleep.com. You can follow the show on Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Before you go, after I say goodnight, please stick around. I have a trailer for a super fun podcast called History Obscura for you. I sat and listened to quite a few episodes while I was too sick to do anything but lie there, and it's fun and so informative. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Hello and welcome to the History Obscura podcast. This is the place where history's forgotten secrets are unshelved from my vast, firelit book repository and reintroduced to the world. Learn stories of space exploration, medieval royals, smugglers, martyrs, and monsters. Subscribe to History Obscura for a fresh tale every Saturday and Tuesday night. Our faith is our shield. If Altman was divinely inspired, why did he have to die? Our sword... Back off! Stay back! And our guide... There are those who will infiltrate. I want you to go undercover. And corrupt us. When do I start? It will make us whole. Clean incision. I'll clean up the bleeding. This may be the worst idea I've ever had. Dead Space Deep Cover is available now. New episodes every other week. You can find Dead Space Deep Cover on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bloody.fm.